Welcome to Faith and to our final message on longings of Advent. We've been in a series as we have uh, saw in Christ the hope of the world, the, the one, the longing of uh, the nations. And uh, today we'll be looking at uh, this passage concerning a waiting widow. Uh, we live in a world that often overlooks and marginalizes people. It could be children, people of different nationalities, different races, different ethnicities, color, different physical abilities, or different ages from the dominant culture. Last Sunday in New York Times, columnist Frank Bruni wrote a column titled, Are You Old, Infirm, Then Kindly Disappear? And he wrote about an 82-year-old woman by the name of Nancy Root, who suffered from post-polio syndrome. And he said that Nancy Root remembers when she vanished. He tells how a few years ago, uh, she was shopping for a mattress, and because the mall was so big and her legs so weak, she had to use a wheelchair, which was new to her, and had her friend push her. And she said that their wait for service was unusually long. And later, as she used the wheelchair more and more, she understood why. In the chair, she said, she became invisible. In the chair, she turned radioactive. People looked over her, around her, through her. They withdrew. Bruni said it was the craziest thing. She had the same keen mind, the same quick wit, but most new acquaintances didn't notice because most no longer bothered to. They make dismissive assumptions about people above a certain age or below a certain level of physical competence or they simply edit those people out of their frame. Bruni was sobered by Nancy's experiences, and he reflected on how our country is getting grayer and grayer with a projection of 98 million people, or 25% of the population of our nation, aging beyond 65 years by 2060, with many having to depend on canes and crutches or walkers as more and more of us here know that these are not just statistics. Bruni said, the more I thought about her experiences, the more I realized how widespread and undoubtedly is, how undoubtedly it is, and how cruel. Such experiences prompts us, not just our fears about aging, but also our longings for a more gracious, more honorable, more loving world. As we turn to our scripture text this morning, we find that the coming of Christ into the world speaks to such feelings and longings. Uh, we find in our text that we have a God who honors the dishonored and marginalized and invisible of our world. We find that Christmas is not just for children and youth. It's also for old people. <laughs> Let's consider Anna, verse 36 and following. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, 
of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Some time ago when I was thinking about preaching this text, it initially intrigued me. And after having a sermon about Simeon, the man commanded for waiting for the consolation of Israel, that, that Pastor Stan preached about last week, I had thought, well, Anna is so closely linked to Simeon, they really are similar stories about people waiting for Jesus. And I really don't have much more I can say about these few verses. And besides, it's hard for me to relate to this elderly widow who spends all of her time at the temple praying and fasting. Who does that? And I actually began the process of looking to replace the text with something else, something I personally might connect with better. Besides, it's Christmas, and who wants to hear a message about fasting and prayer when everybody is feasting and celebrating? Then I felt the Holy Spirit jerk me back. You need to look at this lady more because she holds the answer to your problem. And I said, well, what's my problem, God? And I felt I heard him say this. You are too busy for me. You are so busy doing things. You think you are doing things for me, but you have lost your way. When was the last time you really got quiet for a significant period or fasted because you wanted more of me or were overwhelmed with fresh discoveries about me where I became your joy, or where you felt steady and anchored in the midst of life's storms because you were centered on me. Your life is so full of anxieties, you are stumbling, you are looking for escapes, but you have forgotten me. You are seeking substitutes that don't satisfy. Anna has the secret to a satisfied life. Learn from her. Relearn what you knew. <laughs> now that is basically what I felt God telling me about 14 years ago when I first preached this text, and I still need to hear this. <laughs> I do not believe in extra biblical infallible revelation today, but I do believe that God continues to speak through his inscripturated word to illuminate his scriptures into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And he is dynamically present, and he wants to speak to each one of his children these truths of grace that he has for us in his word. So today I'm preaching to you a message that's really for me, but I think is probably for others, other busy people who often get distracted 
who maybe have lost their way in their pursuit of God. What is the secret to Anna's spiritual vitality that we can learn from in her life, or the God in her life that could help us towards such undaunted joy in God? Well, I believe that we can learn from Anna that Christ's coming means that God honors the dishonored and invisible of our world. That Christ's coming means that God sees what the world often overlooks. That Christ's coming means that God graces, God's presence, and God's love supersedes and overcomes whatever marginalization, human losses, and indignities living in this cursed world has for us. We can capture this in her life as a prophetess esteemed, as a widow worshiping, and as a woman witnessing. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And God's sovereign plan, he decided to give an eternal record in Scripture an exposure to a person that the religious community and authorities at that time considered marginal and really not doing anything worthy of recognition. Certainly, Anna was not the kind of person who would be highlighted in that culture. Some might call her the church lady. <laughs> All she was doing was hanging out at the temple. She was just an old widow, an invisible person before the world, an old lady with a sad story. There are many old ladies with sad stories, I'm sure. Luke starts off mentioning that Anna was a prophetess which was a significant statement of affirmation in a religious culture that often demean women. There were 400 years of silence in Israel from prophets since the days of Malachi. In the interim, religious orders arose that further removed Israel from the purity of the law through the emergence of the scribes and the Pharisees with the development of the Talmud and the Mishnah. Women in the Jewish culture of that day were looked down upon intertestamental book of apocryphal book of the wisdom of Jesus, Ben Sariak, said, sin began with the woman, and thanks to her, we must all die. <laughs> Josephus said, the woman is inferior to man in every way. The Talmud rabbi, Judah Ben Elias, used to say, a man is bound to say the following three blessings daily, blessed are thou who hast not made me a heathen, who has not made me a woman, and who has not made me a brutish man. And Rabbi Eliezer said, there is no wisdom in woman except with the distant spindle. In light of all these anti-biblical notions that emerged, women were not thought to be persons who could learn religious things. They were isolated, often confined in their homes or the homes of their fathers, not spoken to publicly, could be divorced by their husbands for any reason, but had no legal rights and could not testify in the court of law. But here is Anna. Here is Anna the prophetess. <laughs> Given this record in divine scripture, one who received and spoke God's revelation, and now while that is Luke's description, maybe other real saints in the Jewish community had that, uh, but it was not something the religious leaders of that day acknowledged or affirmed. Two of the women prophets from the Old Testament, Deborah and Huldah, are rarely mentioned in the Talmud, and the two occasions that they did, that they were, uh, they were de depreciated, 
for boasting and haughtiness. Rabbi Nahum said there were two haughty women and their names are hateful. One was called Hornet, which was Deborah, and the other Weasel, Huldo. Women speaking to men about spiritual matters was totally out of place. This was the culture of that day. But here God affirms and highlights and honors and esteems Anna, as he did so many other women in the scriptures. The nativity account opens with the angel meeting with Mary, the young virgin who was blessed and honored among all women to carry the Savior, the Son of God, in her womb. And the nativity narrative ends with the woman Anna, the aged Anna, the prophetess. Many have wrongly said that John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament that introduced Jesus in the New Testament, but that's not true. Anna is given that honor. Uh, Norval Geldenheist, uh, when he, the commentator about uh, the Gospel of Luke, he says, in Luke is shown as nowhere else what a totally different attitude Jesus assumed towards women in contrast with the contemptuous attitude which Jews as well as pagans manifested towards them. I think that Sojourner Truth uh, steps up and reveals the strength of a woman in her day. Uh, Sojourner Truth uh, lived 1791 to 1875. She was a prominent abolitionist and uh, woman's rights activist. She was born a slave in New York State. Uh, she had at least Three of her children sold away from her, and after escaping, Sojourner Truth embraced evangelical faith and became involved in moral reform and the abolitionist work. And she's perhaps best known for her stirring speech, Ain't I a Woman, which she gave in the Women's Rights Convention in Ohio in 1851. It was the second day uh, of that convention, and several male ministers showed up and argued that women should not have the same rights as men. Uh, the minister's reasoning, men were weak, uh, women were weak, men were intellectually superior to women, and Jesus was a man, and our first mother sinned. And so during her truth, she rose and delivered her short, masterful speech, invoking tenets of Christianity and using her strong, imposing presence to debunk the minister's arguments. Pointing to her well-muscled arm, she says, Look at me, look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it, and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most of them all sold to slavery. And when I cried out to my mother's grief, None but Jesus heard me, and ain't I a woman? As to the argument that Jesus was a man, she responded, Where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. <laughs> and turning the sin of Eve argument on its head, she lectured, if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women together ought to be able to turn it up back and get it right upside, up, up again, upside again. 
Anyway, all accounts, truth spoke to the crowd of the church. They were wildly, uh, she was wildly applauded with a rising ovation. Anna was given this calling, this calling as a prophetess, as a gift to her, but also to God's people. But you know, the scriptures tell us that he has given gifts to every one of his children. And if you are here today and you have trusted Christ, the scriptures tell us that Christ has ascended on high and he has given gifts to his people. And each one of you, regardless of how demeaned you might feel in this world, you're precious to him. You are valued to him. And he has given a special gift for you particularly to display his glory in the world. And so I encourage you, as the scriptures tell us, as First Peter says, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various form, that you would use what you have and you would praise God and that you would not let the world look down on what you've been given. But we also see in Anna a worshiping widow. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And in these verses describing Anna, what Luke appears to focus on is a woman who faced very deep loss in her life. This is what marked her. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow. Uh, there's a question in terms of how long was she a widow? Was she a widow for 84 years, uh, which would have made her over 100? And uh, Because if you add, like, she, let's say she got married at maybe 16, and then she was married for seven years, and she, you know, she lost her husband at around the age of 23, and then for 84 more years that she was, she was a widow, that would have made her 103 or somewhere around that, or she was a widow for 84 years. Regardless, she could have been a widow for 60 years or 84 years. The point is that she experienced all of the loneliness, all of the desperation that a lot of women would have felt. And she says that there were no, there's no mention of children with her as well. Luke mentions that she was the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And apparently this was a significant uh, tribe. It was significant to know your tribal heritage. And Asher was one of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Apparently, women, the women of Asher were known for their beauty and talent, which qualified them for royal and high priestly marriage. And so it was probably that Anna was such a woman of status, but it says that she never married again. Maybe Anna yearned to get remarried, to have a family, to have children. Maybe she well knew and tried to follow Paul's later exhortation for young widows to remarry, not let Satan have a foothold, but... While she may have tried, no man stepped up. And maybe it was year after year, and she never found that man. And she lost her youth and probably her beauty along the way. And of course, maybe many men did pursue her, but, they, but she wasn't satisfied with them. We don't know. 
But what, what we do know is that she was single for those years. She lost her beloved husband. She lost her youth. She had no children. And she lost societal affirmation and dignity. And I could imagine that Anna, in the face of such disappointments in life, maybe many times she maybe thought that God forgot her, that God had abandoned her. But what we learned about Anna is that she did not let God get off the hook. And so she was like that persevering widow that Jesus talks about that kept nagging, uh, beating the judge black and blue in order to get justice. She would not be denied. And I think there must have been a turning point in Anna somewhere along the way. And I think that Anna, in her crying out and pouring her heart out to God over and over again, eventually heard God speak to her, maybe in words something like these. Anna, I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. I have never, I never will. I will be a husband to you. I will love you like no other man, and I will provide for you, and I will honor you and give you a place of dignity and esteem in my courts. Your days will be full, my people, and people seeking my voice will come far and wide to hear your word from your lips, my word from your lips. I will put my spirit in you, and you will prepare the way of the Messiah, whom you will behold with your own eyes and hold with your own arms." I really, don't, I really don't know what the particulars that God maybe revealed to Anna beforehand, but what we do know is that Anna gave herself to her calling and to her God in the courts. And what we see is not a woman embittered, but a woman full of joy and a woman full of the Spirit. We find in the scriptures that it says in Psalm 92, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. And I think Anna exemplifies such. Barclay, the commentator, says, She had known sorrow and she had not grown bitter. Sorrow can do one of two things to us. It can make us hard, bitter, resentful, rebellious against God, or it can make us kinder, softer, more sympathetic. It can despoil us of our faith, or it can root faith even deeper. It all depends how we think of God. If we think of him as, a dis in, as distant and detached, we may well despair, but, it, but if we think of him as intimately connected with life as having his hands on the helm, we too will be sure that the best is yet to come and the years will, and the years will never kill our hope. And I think that was the disposition of Anna. She held on to her God. And so Anna teaches us important lessons that you and I too can enjoy God because he's bigger than life's greatest losses. Uh, whether it's dis disabling health, or the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, loss of a marriage, loss of financial security, loss of social dignity or prestige or fame or status. God, this God of the scriptures, this God of our advent, this God of the coming of Christ into the world is bigger 
than all of our losses. So Anna teaches us this. But, you know, I think we see something about Anna's disciplines that kept her in this focus. It says that she uh, never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Fasting and praying. You know, a lot of times we think of fasting as like this spiritual discipline for just the spiritual giants. But actually, I think that what we find with Anna was that she wasn't really just like fasting uh, to be uh, a person of great spiritual, you know, super spirituality, but she was so in love with her God uh, that, that the, the food took second place. Uh, John Piper wrote a book, uh, Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer, and he says in the preface, the fight of faith is a fight to feast on all that God is for us in Christ. What we hunger for most, we worship. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a, home, of a homesickness for God, the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God, a lover's quest. Uh, Thomas Chalmers talks about uh, the whole nature that um, <clears throat> you cannot destroy love for the world or for things in this world merely by showing its emptiness. Even if we could do so, that would lead Owen to despair. World-centered love for our hearts can be expelled only by a new love and, fa- and affection for God and from God. The love of the world can be driven out only by the love of the Father. And so he just talks about, you know, there's many competing things for the center of our affections in our hearts. Uh, it could be food. You know, it could be material things. Uh, It could be experiences in the world. Many of the good gifts that God gives us, but the problem is that we take those good gifts and those simple pleasures, and then they become the idols in our lives. And so what we find with, with Anna is that she knew where her true treasure was, and she wanted more of it. Uh, J.C. Ralph said, she served God with prayer night and day. She was continually communing with him as her best friend about the things that concerned her own peace. She was never weary of pleading with him on behalf of others and above all uh, for the fulfillment of, uh, of his promises of Messiah. And so prayer and fasting were not, uh, for Anna, disciplines of a woman striving to be spiritual. They were engagements of a woman in love with her God, and she could not get enough of him. Prayer and fasting, taking time to get away with, with God and to pursue him uh, beyond the gifts and the celebrations of life was that she was finding such deep satisfaction in her experience with God. But what, I, want, I want to just take a moment here just to say the location of where she was. The location. You know, Reuben, uh, in the beginning of our Advent series, talked about, isn't Christmas romantic? You know, and a lot of times we maybe not don't think of that. But what you re- need to recognize is that the whole nature of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, I have so this is a picture of uh, at the time of Jesus, a, a sketch of an artist's depiction of the temple in Jerusalem, and you can see these walls around it, and you see the interior of where the temple is. And what I want you to just think about is a castle with a king. You know, all great stories, all great narratives about the king and the castle, 
It's about a king who is righteous. It's about a king who is powerful. It's about a king who is wise. And yet it's also about a king who is loving and gentle and gracious. But it's also about a king who is pursuing a distressed princess. A princess who is in trouble. A princess who needs to be rescued and redeemed. And you have the king who is willing to fight the dragons to capture this lady and to bring her into the safety of the kingdom. We also know that the greatest stories are when the king, when the prince, is willing to sacrifice his own life to pursue this princess. And that is the narrative of all the great stories. And this is the kingdom. And this is the center of the kingdom. You see, Jerusalem was the center of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And the temple was the center of his presence. And the footstool, which was in the holiest of holies, the covenant ark, was the footstool of, of the king. And you have all of the temple worship all surrounded that. You see the, uh, the court, the women's court, and this is where uh, Anna would have been hanging out. This is where she would have been doing her words of prophecy to people that would come in. Uh, this is where she probably had lines of people coming to listen to her wisdom, seeking the voice of God for their lives. I can only imagine her days were so full of just wonderful experiences. And there at the gate of Nicanor, which is uh, the gate that goes into uh, the place that really only priests could go into. Uh, and then once a year, only a high priest could go into the most holy place. But at that place is where Jesus uh, met Simeon, uh, and who Simeon had held in his arms and had performed the, the rites of dedication. And what we find is that Anna was there. And Anna acknowledged that Jesus was this one. But what you need to recognize is that Anna was captivated by the nature of this king, about this God, and she gave herself to him. But finally, we see a woman witnessing. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Here's Anna was waiting for the redemption. Anna knew that the God of the Scripture was a God of promise. And he had promised the Messiah, and she was going to wait for this Messiah, and her longings were fulfilled. You know, we live in a world where many make promises. Politicians make promises, leaders, spouses make promises, our parents make promises. And many times, as we know, the promises that we make or the humans make are often broken. Maybe even our parents have broken promises, and maybe you know of that. Um, Elder Bill gave permission to, for me to share this. This was uh, about his own uh, life as growing up. Uh, he was the oldest uh, son of five other siblings. And uh, he said, and his dad, his father, struggled with alcoholism. And he said when he was eight, his father promised him a wagon for Christmas when he was eight. And Bill had high expectations about receiving this wagon. But Christmas came and went, and there was no wagon. Two Christmases later, 
His dad finally got him the wagon, but he was no longer interested in it. And Bill said that that and similar experiences caused him to become a skeptic. And he said, broken promises and the hurt of continual disappointments caused me to disengage my feelings. I removed myself emotionally. I learned not to expect, not to believe. But God also gave Bill a godly, hardworking, loving mother who was always singing, the Lord will make a way somehow. And she was always on her knees, particularly on New Year's Eve, praying in New Year's and giving praise to God. And on a particular New Year's Eve, In 1967, Bill decided to join his mom at that New Year's Eve service, and Bill made a decision and gave his life to Christ. And he remembers the song that pierced his heart, Let nothing between my Lord and my Savior, Jesus is mine, let nothing between. But Bill said that being the child of an alcoholic parent who grew up with neglect and broken promises, Bill said that he had built in a circuit breaker, uh, he, would, he would limit and not expect God to provide. The fulfillment of dreams remained the realm of the impossible. However, Bill said God changed his heart and that orientation uh, in the early 80s of our venture here at Faith Christian Fellowship when he was acting as treasurer of the church And in our struggling years, uh, someone put a check in the offering plate of (laughs) $30,000. And I remember because uh, Steve Stahl, who was uh, one of our deacons, said, I think this person put too many zeros on this check. I think this is a mistake. uh, But it wasn't a mistake. And then a person uh, within a week wrote another check for $30,000 and uh, wanted us and to help us to pay off the mortgage of this building. And when that all happened, Bill said, that broke the circuit wide open. (laughs) I was able to believe that God could do the impossible. And Bill started to see that God, not only only as the one who uh, allowed his people to suffer in order to build character, but was also the God who would fulfill dreams. And Bill witnessed this God fulfilled dreams of a hope and a future. And you know, ultimately, that is the destiny that he has us all in. He doesn't promise us health and wealth in this life necessarily, but at moments he will reveal his glory and his majesty and his kindness and his goodness to give us taste of the future glory that is to come. And this Christ came. And Anna held this Christ. And Anna was this esteemed prophetess, this widow, aged widow, who was in all of her glory with her Savior. And Jesus is, has come, and Jesus will come. And we need to hold these promises of God closely to our hearts. Uh, George Mueller wrote, uh, he was the guy that, opened up an orphanage that uh, served hundreds, if not thousands, of, of uh, orphan children. He says, I, I keep a little scrap of paper uh, 
by my prayer bench, and whenever I read a promise that, I, that can lure me away from my guilt and fear and greed, I write it down. And then in dry spells, I have a pile of promises to soak my soul in. The fight of faith is fought with the promises of God. And the fight of faith is the same as the fight to walk by the Spirit. He works when we are resting in His promises. And so, people of faith, you have a God who is a God of promise. He wants you to hold those promises. And he wants you to know that you're an esteemed and beloved son and daughter, highly gifted and called to his presence and his glory in the world. If you're here today and, and uh, maybe you, you're, you happen to walk into this service and you just are trying to figure out if Jesus is really true, Jesus extends his arms and his welcome to you. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, I'd like to ask those who are coming back to our Christmas Eve service tonight to be praying and thinking about those who might be coming for the first time. A lot of times Christmas Eve services are those occasions where people never frequent the church, but they will come to an, an, uh, a service like this. Would you pray that God would do a work of opening hearts and, and minds uh, for his presence tonight, and maybe even invite someone who, who maybe doesn't frequent uh, church to come and, and ex, 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 explore that. I'd like to talk to, finally, the children and youth here. Tomorrow morning, you'll probably wake up and there'll be gifts uh, that you'll be opening. Uh, you maybe have given, uh, you know, your parents or uh, someone uh, ideas of what you would like for Christmas. And you're hoping that, that those gifts could be there for you. But let me say this. As you open those gifts, I want you to realize, and you want, I want you to thank those who have given those gifts to you, but know this, is that behind those gifts is the Father of all lights, who is the giver of every single good gift, as James tells us. That you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who has promised eternal life through Christ for you, and never forget that he is the great giver of all the gifts of this season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us today, that we have the, uh, the example, the life of Anna. What a wonderful short story, but with so much power for us. Lord, help us to, to look at her life and to learn the secret of her joy of finding that you are a God that's bigger than all the losses and all the problems of our world, that there is a joy that can't be snuffed out, and that, God, you have a service that's treasured for each one of your people, and that, God, you are the God of promise and salvation. Lord, let us live in that this Christmas, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.